Hello, welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. We're here live again, um, talking about our articles from August, and I have my the founder of the Bonson Group here, David Bonson, so that we can discuss these three articles that were written in the month of August. Hey, uh, good to be with you again, Trevor. Now you start. You said I have my, uh, and then you. What were you? Were you going to say my? Uh, Worst nightmare here. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I started there a little bit, and I wanted to figure out the descriptor. Yes. Uh, founder, Founder, I guess, is biographical enough. It makes me uh, sound older than I feel. Yeah, partner in crime, I thought, first, yeah. but then, you know, maybe not not appropriate for a finance podcast. No, it gives the SEC ammo if they ever decide it, to. Definitely. So, Trevor, you've written three articles in the month of August. We should probably point out there was a fourth Thoughts on Money in August as well. Our, our friend and colleague, Kenny Molina, wrote one. We're going to talk about the three that you wrote um, here today, and and I'm going to kind of just tee it up for you, and we'll have a little conversation. All three kind of different topics. You know, there there's obviously always correlation of topics in financial services um, but in this case, I think these are pretty distinct and really and really differentiated lessons that you were providing for the readers here. Let's start off with with pearls of wisdom, and you you kind of tie it into the fact that, of course, you and and your wife Nicole welcomed a baby boy into the world last year, and there's a sense of which you you contemplate what you want what kind of lessons you want uh, to be able to, to give on to, to your kid as he gets older and so forth. But but just foundationally, you think about those kind of premises to money, the presuppositions one might have and how they think about their financial life. Maybe walk through the three major categories you highlight in this article. Of course. So one of the motivations for writing this is uh, I stay fairly involved in finance Twitter, and there's a lot of conversations about how they wish that finance or personal finance was taught in high school, and they talk about, hey, what's the what's the perfect book to give somebody um, with this educational advice on what they need to know on the building blocks of finance? So I thought for myself, hey, my son's going to grow up one day, and there's things that I want to teach him. Um, what are those things? And I tried to think of like first truths are things that were um, more overarching that maybe apply to other parts of life and I would say would be impactful to finance. So the first thing that I pointed out was this idea of giving first. Um, and I think this is something people skip over a lot. Uh, my family um, values being charitable and we think that it's good for us. We think that uh, it gives us a good, healthy view of money, understanding that it's a tool and a resource that should be um, not only invested in things that we want or in our future, but also in things that we care about. Um, and I know that's something that's near and dear to your heart and that you uh, invest in um, things that you believe in around you. So the the first concept was this idea that you should give first. Um, and that's kind of uh, antithetical to a lot of finance books that say kind of pay yourself first. So um, yeah, I, it could be disagreeable for some, but I thought that would be the first truth that I wanted to teach our son. So before before we go on to the, the next ones, let me ask you a couple questions on that. Um, is Is your belief that one ought to give first within a context of budgeting or give first and then with the net after giving proceeds conduct the budgeting process ask that one more time so i can understand yeah i'm sorry let me word it a little more uh, artfully should the giving be part of the budgeting process or should the budgeting take place after the giving has been done 
I would say that the budgeting should take place uh, after the giving has been done. Um, mm. uh, from a biblical standpoint, in, in my belief, it's this idea of giving first fruits. Um, and if we go back to the story of Cain and Abel and we look at the difference of what their giving looked like, I like this idea of taking in resources and then giving away first and then whatever the whatever you want to call it, the leftovers are, planning accordingly from there. The reason I like to do that is because I feel like if you don't, um, giving can sometimes get pushed out um, as things get tight or other things start taking priority over giving. And so um, you you kind of answered the second question for me already, but I'll let you elaborate to a degree. Is this a, 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 a value system point that you've you included as the first principle in, in your article that you would be recommending even apart from your own faith and values belief system? Or, or like, do you think that there is, in other words, sort of broad, abstract financial wisdom in it, even apart from the specifics of your belief system, or or do you really derive it quite specifically out of that that uh, you know commitment to your your own biblical worldview? It's a good question, and I would love to hear your opinion on it. My first take would be that. The reason that it comes from my belief system is that it's good for you. Um, and it's, I don't know if this would be the primary reason, but the first thing that comes to mind is that when you do give first, you kind of uh, let go of this idea of like idolizing money or elevating it to a higher level than it should be, or even this idea that um, you're controlling your own security. Um, whether you believe in God or not, um, you do understand that what tomorrow has for you is definitely out of your control. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I think it's interesting that, um, I mean, when you get into the specificity of it, like the actual kind of nitty gritty of people's, you know, requirement to give, I don't think I have a way to defend it apart from my belief system that, that you and I share. But I do believe that in a kind of um, natural sense that is really less specific and just more overarching to wisdom and general um, uh, best principles, I, I think that there is something to be said for uh, greater fulfillment and greater um, opportunity for flourishing and greater um, contentment around one's financial peace when giving is at the cornerstone of it. Now, that's broad. You know, you have to fill it in a little bit. And, and I think that to fill it in, it does then kind of go to a deeper level of one specific belief system and one's commitments. Um, but, but really what you've done here, I think, is very, is very helpful because before one goes into some of the other granularity of financial budgeting and whatnot, you've, you've talked about this first fruits, first things, uh, commitment to generosity and and um, I, I think it's really profound. Uh, you know, they're they're in our modern economy. Um, we underestimate how charitable people really are and can be. And I think it's really uh, interesting that it, with all the prosperity that exists in the West and for all the talk about greed and materialism, uh, there's still we still tend to be a, a pretty philanthropic uh, society, and maybe not everyone's necessarily doing it all for the right reasons. I, yeah, I, I'm sure that's true. But um, for people that are blessed with little, the one thing maybe I would have added to this is that, uh, and and, and it, you did not say this, but I think that um, it's counterintuitive. A lot of people will believe once you're in position to afford giving, 
And I really think that uh, you know, that day never comes unless someone just starts off before they can afford it. Mm-hmm. And and so in other words, being able to do it just at whatever level one is at, you can ten dollars, yeah, whatever it is. That's right. That then it bu- builds a habit mm-hmm. that uh, becomes more sustainable as one's own revenues and expenses scale in their adult life. Here's a question for you, and I know it's hard for our, for us to put ourselves in other people's shoes, but we know that um, somebody like Carnegie or somebody like Bill Gates and what he's doing right now, those feel like they're pretty disconnected from any sort of religious beliefs. Um, what do you think the driving force? Is it just man's desire to leave a legacy? or? Uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, w- without picking on Carnegie particularly, just in general, the various motivators for giving that I've seen um, – are there is sometimes a sort of humanistic altruism that is sincere, and there is also sometimes guilt where one feels that they um, are not comfortable with the prosperity that they've enjoyed, and they somehow uh, sleep better at night by um, feeling that they are returning what they enjoy as opposed to uh, u- utilizing it. And, and then I also do think that there is sometimes that legacy factor um, that it has more to, it, it's almost a public recognition issue. And, and you see that a lot too, that um, on a high profile level of charitable philanthropy that, that uh, naming rights and, uh, you know, sometimes at a high level, these things are like negotiations. It's like mm. a business transaction and. Uh, look, I guess if someone's going to be giving that much significant amount of money, they have a right to kind of call some shots. But it it doesn't quite feel philanthropic to me when your lawyers have to negotiate the deal, you know. But I'll leave that alone. Yeah, I'm reading a, a book right now. I forgot the title of it, but uh, it's something to the extent of The Billionaire You Never Knew. And it was the uh, gentleman who started the duty-free shops and um, how he began to give anonymously a lot of his wealth. And I think it was the motivation between behind well, Did uh, he write the book? Uh, no, he didn't. Okay. That was the same. That's, <laughs> yeah. like Michael, that's, that's really not very good anonymity. Do you, do you remember the Michael Scott episode where he says that he wants to give uh, and then one day go walk with somebody and be like, see that anonymous sign? Yeah. I'm anonymous. <laughs> that's me, Michael Scott. I did that. Yeah, I, uh, you know, of course, you talk about biblical precedent of this stuff. I think it's Matthew 6, 4, but I could be off. But the uh, not giving in a way that everyone will see it. I don't think that our culture has held on to that mantra very well, including like, you know, well-meaning, sometimes faith-based people. I still think that there's a sense which a lot of people want to be seen with what they're giving. But that anonymous uh, idea is, is, I guess, a little bit more shall we say, uh, altruistic and impressive. But but to your point on the financial wisdom of it, we'll move on to the, the next point here about know your numbers. There is a um, uh, an emotional, psychological, moral benefit around giving, and there's also financial wisdom in the framing of one's economic resources. Then you talk about knowing your numbers. This is something near and dear to my heart. Um, you the, the couple proper nouns that all highlight that you talk about were the familiarity, the awareness, clarity, perspective. There's a lot of benefits to knowing your numbers, but explain what you mean by it. Definitely. And this is something we can be inspired by you. I know in your recent podcast, you've talked about how you know the numbers of the Dow movement um, going back like the last 30 days with the volatility that we've had. Is it right? 30 days? Is that... 
Yeah, if I, I I have a pretty good ability to retain numbers, uh, so I, I could probably do it a little more than 30 days right now, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, in a former job, uh, that was a, kind of a mantra of one of my bosses. He he always would come in, and uh, when we'd look over the P&L, he would say, hey, you, you really need to know your numbers. And I think it, if, if you hear that at first, you think, oh, okay, this is like a memorization drill, where it's really not. Um, when you gain that familiarity with your numbers, you begin to see how all the puzzle pieces fit together. And from a planning perspective, it, it helps you to know what the next step looks like. So this isn't um, a, a bash on anybody, but there's too many people that I talk to that couldn't tell me um, how much perhaps they spent last month, or they couldn't tell me the, the rate on their mortgage, or perhaps they couldn't tell me their effective tax rate or something like that. So maybe those things are second level and those things we can aspire to, but minimally, I, I would say that you definitely want to know kind of those basic numbers. What is your income? Um, what is your portfolio allocation? Um, what, what was your returns last year? And once you have that familiarity, I think it drives a lot of like you use the word clarity on kind of what you should plan for and any adjustments that you need to make. So, so I'm going to give uh, like 10 examples of things where I hear people say they don't, don't know. And I, and I bet you could add 10 more right away. Like that's how many things we're talking about here. I've had people, I'll say, um, well, how much is coming your paycheck for your medical insurance? And then, I don't know. Okay. How much do you make? And they know their net, but they don't know their gross. Or they know their gross and don't know their net. Um, how much you spend in a month? I mean, almost nobody knows that, or they make up a number and they understate the number by like 30, 40, 50 percent. Yeah. But one of the things I've heard people say is, I don't pay attention to it much anymore, but it's not because I'm a slacker or disorganized. It's because now that we have phones and technology, Back in the day, I had to write, balance my checkbook because I needed to know what was in my checking account at any given time. But now if I'm out, I can look at the phone and, and I in real time see what's going on. Um, we're not really just talking about cash flow, checking account balance. You're talking about a number of other variables, a couple examples I just gave, but maybe fill in even more so people think holistically about the, the kind of... Uh, uh, I don't want to say intellectual framework because it, make it, it makes it sound too deep and sophisticated. This is really simple, the knowledge framework that you're talking about. Yeah, expand a little bit more. Help me to answer that. Like, like, is it that they need to know all the stocks that they own? It's not that granular, right? Like how many shares of Microsoft or make up any stock you want? How many shares of a given stock do you own? You're not saying people need to know all those details, but when you refer to the numbers that one needs to know, their goals, their uh, income, their expenditures, I'm just trying to fill in what are the key variables that one wants to have to be executing this point correctly. Definitely. So if I began to make a laundry list, like you said, um, I would start with, hey, you definitely want to know what your gross income is. You definitely want to know what's being taken out of your paycheck, like medical taxes, things of that nature. Um, you should have a general idea of your allocation to stocks, bonds, alternatives, kind of what that looks like. Um, you should have an idea of how much you want to spend when you retire. You should know the rate on your mortgage. You should know what your mortgage monthly payment is. Um, and those are kind of uh, off the cuff general numbers, but maybe we could also talk about the motivation behind why you want to know that. 
one day you want to hang up your hat and stop working for some people for some people that's their aspiration so you got to get an idea of what the target is on where you need to get your nest egg to in order to make that happen and a lot of that math happens behind what your expected returns are and what your committed savings rate is um you can't get there by just saying, oh, I, I'm going to try to double my expected return. No, there's some contributions that have to happen on your part. So it might be the answer that, hey, if you want to hang up the hat in 10 years, maybe we need to up your savings rate to, to 25%. So solving for that problem rather than deferring it and saying, hey, I hope it all works out. Um, that's my motivation behind telling my son, hey, you should really know your numbers. And then your final point was be patient. And it's interesting that there is both, again, a so, like your first point on giving, there's both a kind of economic lesson and a moral lesson in this. Uh, you point out, obviously, we're in an era of instant gratification. A lot of the tenants of finance acquire uh, patience. Uh, almost in the created order, there is a sense in which um, these, these things uh, require time. Uh, to to fully um, realize the economic fulfillment that one is going for. Um, but in this particular case, is the issue here more math or, or more um, virtue? I'd say virtue. It's behavioral. Mm -hmm. um, it could be math, too, in this idea of compounding interest. And if you are patient, that you benefit over time. But this is one of those things that I'm writing to myself. I have so much trouble being patient um, in so many aspects of my life. And I will tell you that, um, I mean, even on CNBC, if you watch it, right, the one thing that we're talking about right now is that should companies be reporting quarterly earnings? Should they care about that? Should they uh, be so uh, laser focused? And there's different arguments for it. But it's this idea that we are so short-sighted as a society um, that it's uh, – it's been a hindrance to ourselves. Um, and I'll say this one last thing on it. I have a friend that's going through a little bit of a tough time right now. And uh, some of us have come alongside him and we, we've talked about patience, but we've actually started using a different word that the Bible uses a lot. And it's this idea of long suffering, um, which has the same meaning, but uh, it definitely gives you a little bit different context when you realize that part of patience um, is not always getting what you want um, and, and waiting it out. And um, as we're going to talk about this next article, my wife and I have been looking for a home and I've had to remind myself because, again, I found myself getting impatient um, and wanting to kind of rush the process. So I would say patience is definitely something fairly important when it comes to finance. So there's a, a moral and virtue component to this. And, that, and, and therefore, if we struggle with this as a society, you could argue it, we struggle with it because of uh, virtue challenge. But, but practically speaking, what has an uh, it's a trick question or it's an obvious question, but if you don't get it right away, I'll just pretend it was a trick question. Sounds good. What is the what's the reason the tool by which we have been able to facilitate people not being patient? What is the tool that we've been able to facilitate for people not being patient? So let's assume for sake of argument that we have a virtue deficit that that really d makes people desire, uh, things that they can't afford in the modern age, and that 50 years ago this wasn't as big of a problem, and yet the virtue deficit would have been maybe the same. What's the difference? Are you alluding to credit cards? Well, credit. <laughs> credit, okay. Okay. So, so credit is this idea of being It was actually, the problem is it was a trick question because it was so obvious that you're like, it must be something else, <laughs> you know. But that's all I'm getting at, yeah. is we have an entire national economic infrastructure that is in 
completely devoted to facilitating people being able to buy things that they can't afford. The old joke was, uh, was it Popeye commercial, a uh, Popeye uh, uh, stick of I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. And that, that, that little thing line now wouldn't even make sense to people because who cares about three days of credit? Now, now it's like, I'll gladly pay you in 10 years for a whole household of furniture today, you know, and no one would blink at it. Yeah. And basically you're leveraging your future self um, by saying, hey, I want to I want to take this enjoyment today and drive this today and I'll pay for it later and hopefully it all works out. And and have a depreciating asset or a disappearing asset, consumer spending generally um, up against a uh, permanent debt, and in fact, an escalating debt with the cost of interest. Did that 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 theme or that? Have thought... you ever heard that Popeye line? No, I've not. Brian, Brian, was that was that Popeye the wimpy uh, gladly? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But so, first of all, it's way before your time, but it's kind of even before my time. Popeye, that's, Robin that's Williams, why had, that's right? why we had to bring our uh, producer in. <laughs> Generationally, it worked for him. But anyways, yeah, I mean that line, it was like meant to be sarcastic. And now it like way understates the reality of instant gratification in our culture. Yeah, was that uh, was that little theme? Uh, would you say that's a premise of uh, the first book you wrote, um, Crisis Responsibility? It, it's it's a, a part of the the overarching theme, most definitely. That that I think I think that um, financial instrumentation of credit is is morally neutral. In and of itself. What's the perversion? Uh, the perversion is in the very virtue characters that you're talking about. So the notion of a convenience of credit. Okay, I use credit every single day because I don't want to carry cash around in my wallet. And so I can flash my phone or a MasterCard or American Express mm-hmm. as I go around can do and buy things. That is a form of credit. But it's not interest bearing, and it's really a facilitation of transactions. A convenience. Uh, that's right, and and so credit in that sense is a very healthy utility. It's safer, and there's all kinds of other, you know, uh, it it enables more commerce to get done. But I think that what you're highlighting is uh, purchases that are made that ought to be made later, that get made sooner than uh, they should as they pull forward spending into the present and credit helps become the facilitation of that. The problem with it economically is uh, oftentimes people can't afford to service the debt of what they're buying and uh, they then cannot afford to buy things in the future that they would otherwise be able to buy because they're still paying for things that they bought in the then past, which is the current present. Okay, And you add to that the mortgage reality uh, mortgages are easier to justify. Um, we're going into the the house sec- your second article here. I think I think that um, a lot of people buy homes they can't afford because they can disguise the unaffordability of it around credit as well. And so we'll we'll unpack that here in a moment. But at the end of the day, to answer your question, the crisis of responsibility, I would argue, has been largely fed by by credit. Um, the student loan industry is one of the great examples of it and then you have multiple bad actors you have people taking on debt they can't afford taking on debt that they haven't thought through what the strategy for it is or what exactly the economic asset is that they're getting out of it and you have the person receiving the money 
from the borrowed funds who is now willy-nilly able to raise prices to, to perverse and astronomical levels and to divorce themselves from market competition because there's so much money sloshing around that they can charge whatever they want and dim, uh, diminish the quality of the product. I'm referring to the universities. And then you have the underwriters of the loans that are, that are creating the funds without any form of underwriting, not even attempting to underwrite the credit profile of the people who are buying or uh, borrowing the money. And in that case, it happens to be the federal government doing so with taxpayer funds. So, yeah, I don't really have any good guys in that story of student loans. So the, the debt story uh, goes far and wide. Does it essentially, and we can move on after this, but um, would you say a summation of that is that it, it actually distorts the efficiency of markets? Because you're saying like these actors can charge a little bit more for money that doesn't really exist, and all these things are creating, uh, I would guess you would describe it as a bubble that eventually will pop? Yeah, I think that um, almost all interventions are distortive. And the problem with that word in this case is it is... Um, so understating. It mm. does not distort markets. It holistically perverts them. Got it. To the point where the price inflation of higher education has tripled consumer price inflation. And when you compound that, it's astronomical what it's meant. And that is entirely a byproduct. Um, of easy lending. Of easy lending. Of easy borrowing. Easy borrowing. And I think, and I think that... Um, the notion now that people would be paying off student debt into their 40s, uh, if there were was data saying clear as could be that we have upped the income ante as a result of this, I would still feel I would still be against it. But at least then you would have a compressed delta uh, mm -hmm. between the two. But it's nobody with a straight face would even argue that generationally, creating the same jobs at the, at the same wage trend growth. Uh, which is somewhat muted, uh, particularly in the middle class, and yet uh, now with this debt service carry to go with it. And and um, anyways, that yeah, that's a whole broader subject. We could do a whole podcast on it. Maybe we should. As you mentioned that other book, uh, that book I wrote, Crisis of Responsibility, I have a whole chapter about it. But I think that the debt phenomena in that case, you have we got to focus on the bad actor in that deal that is us. Um, because the universities, they're responding to the incentives that have been given to them. And, and the government is, do, is doing what politicians do really quite well, which is spend other people's money. But the problem is that we have got to quit borrowing it or rethink the strategy around borrowing it. So let's transition around strategy of borrowing to the discussion of you and Nicole getting ready to buy a home. And we talk about uh, how one wants to think about buying a kind of first-time house. So much like I'm suggesting with student loans, um, that one ought to have consideration around why they're doing it, how long it's going to take, what they're hoping to get out of it. You're suggesting a lot of the same stuff before borrowing money to buy a home. Maybe give us the summation of this uh, thoughts on money. Yeah, the overview, um, when I wrote that first article on Pearls of Wisdom, I got a lot of emails from clients, a lot of parents, and giving me ideas on kind of what things that they've learned uh, throughout their uh, financial history uh, and kind of things that they want to pass down to their children. And um, I know that first article can seem um, 
a little bit more philosophical rather than practical. So what I wanted to do is take those same parts and plug that into, okay, let's take a practical thing, buy a house. Let's take those same three truths and describe how they would fit into to buying a house. So um, as uh, um, out of place as it might seem is how do you take this idea of give first and you plug it into buying a house? Well, the idea is that when you look at buying a house, like you mentioned, you got to figure out what you can afford. Um, and when you're deriving affordability, the first thing that you should look at if giving is important to you um, is you extract what your giving is, you look at what's left over, and then you start to anchor towards um, kind of what's that, um, what's that commonplace of an appropriate amount of money to spend on a mortgage. And, and really, it's probably between, it's probably about a quarter uh, of your budget. So when, when you look at your income, you're probably safe to spend about 25% of it on your house. When you start going heavy over that and you're going over the average of everybody else in, uh, in the U.S. on kind of what they're spending on a home, you're probably getting to a place where you probably can't afford it. So um, this idea of give first was was plugged in there to, to figure out affordability. And really, I just plugged in a back of the napkin to say, hey, what if you gave 10%, you saved 20%, your mortgage payment was 30%, and then the 40% left over, would that be able to cover your current lifestyle, um, your gym membership, your insurance, your taxes, your entertainment, and so on and so forth. So, so would you say that the point of this section is having a formula or this formula? It's not this formula. Uh, this formula was just written down to give uh, some context. A and, framework. Uh, yeah, give fr a framework, exactly. Um, what I'm telling somebody, and I think you were saying it before, is that you really have to figure out is this place affordable? Um, and honestly, it's really hard to not get your emotions involved. Um, in the last article, I used this idea of a, of a high school sweetheart. Um, that girl or that gentleman that you met and um, you started to play out in your mind. I, we have this idea of girls writing in cursive uh, the, man, the man's last name and, and all these things and, and playing out the future. Man, can you do that when you're looking for a house? There's a couple houses uh, Nicole and I put offers on um, that I swore we had our son's fifth birthday already. Like in my mind, I was already going there. So those emotions can get in the way of understanding this idea is, hey, brass tacks, can I afford this? So I think that was the, the first place I would encourage people to start. And um, I'm plugging in my idea, but I'm saying, hey, afford doesn't mean that you give up other things in the sense of things that are important, meaning it doesn't, uh, you, you shouldn't give up saving. You shouldn't give up uh, giving if that's important to you. Affordability means it, it fits into your, perf your, your your current paradigm. Oh, that's excellent stuff. Excellent. And, and you know, um, the, it, it's, it's useful, too, that we're talking about a framework and not the specific percentages because some people can get caught up on those details, and they will alter. And, by the way, sometimes the appropriate percentage for the mortgage, let's say it might be a little bit higher for certain people, I don't think it's usually higher than 30%-ish. Mm -hmm. But but I think as you go up the income scale, that percentage actually needs to go lower. Yeah, sure. You know, it can become really kind of ridiculous if people thought uh, at a much, much higher level of the income um, scale. And so I there there the idea that there's flexibility around it, but it's principle-driven is wonderful. Uh, we don't have to restate the whole th issue about patience because we talked about it already in a more general context, but it sounds like that principle is front and center in the whole idea of buying a home as well. Yeah, 
easy patience right um you, you you can't fall in love with every house you see um and you have to do the math behind the scenes to make sure that you can afford it and honestly i have just gone through the process um in some marketplaces when there's multiple offers on places uh you better be patient um you don't want to start a bidding war and get above what you can afford so and, and the other thing as we transition off of this article the idea of knowing your numbers um was again um how can you take that and look at a mortgage payment and understand what the, all those pieces are and how that fits into um your current situation and a lot of this is about um what am I trying to say here? So w when we talk about this idea of looking at, you know, a third sh of your budget could be your mortgage, it's not to say it, it's have to be. It has to be. It's saying that if you're if you're strongly deviating from that, then you should provide some some reasoning for why you are like, hey, I have this huge raise coming or it makes sense or this is guaranteed or for my situation. It just has to be defensible. That, that's the only point that I'm making. And like you said, if you go up the income or the, the affluence level, then, um, yeah, it's defensible that it should be a lot lower. So um, it's this idea of being able to um, defend what, what you're doing rather than kind of put your hands up and say uh, or cross your fingers and say, I hope this works out. One of the things I liked about the numbers that you used as the hypothetical, so you're saying let's unpack it more so it factors in the cost of insurance and the cost of property taxes, but then also the savings of tax deductibility. And and what one of, you illustrated it as a hypothetical, but in that case, the, the tax savings of the mortgage interest deduction uh, is actually less than the cost of the property taxes. That's often the case, not always, depends on the state and the property tax mm -hmm. level and whatnot. But that kind of vanilla line people hear of, I'm wasting money renting because I'm forfeiting the tax deduction on the mortgage interest, but of course they're not paying property taxes. I think that it's helpful that you're encouraging people to look into the numbers. Ultimately, they see that they're kind of benefiting in one hand, but losing in another and the way it all nets out. Um, it, it's not a very, the mortgage interest deduction is not a very compelling reason to buy a home. Never really has been. I agree. And, um, it's a, it's a common debate online. You go online, you search rent versus buy. There's people that are passionate about it and there are people making some bad arguments. So you really have to, uh, you mean online, there are people making bad arguments on the world wide web. It's not the truth. I don't, I don't <laughs> know about that. Uh, the thing, I mean, if they're typing on a keyboard, they're probably an expert. Yeah, definitely. PhD in mortgages. Yes. Um, all right. Then you close out the month of August with the uh, article, Building Your Own Pension. And this has become, you had written an article last month around some of the legislation Congress is at and kind of altering uh, the Pension Protection Act and, and some other retirement savings functions. But there's the whole concept of how people are going to get future retirement income. You make a number of different points. Give us a summation. Yeah, here's a summation. So I read your book. I loved your book. Uh, it's a really good book. Now we're switching to a different book. Oh, yes. We're switching yeah. to your second book, um, The Case for Dividend Growth. Um, and uh, I've had a lot of conversations with people reaching out and wanting to know more about it. And one of the motivations is that people in this uh, country, they want to retire. Um, and they want this idea of um, having a confidence that a paycheck is showing up in their checking account. So there are a large group of people uh, in the insurance industry that push pension or push uh, annuities as a solution for that. As we talked about in the Secure Act, the government is uh, encouraging this idea that annuities should be an option in 401ks. So I'm introducing, hey, there's another way. Um, and I've introduced this idea that let me tell you three things that make um, 
that that would make me not as attracted to annuity and i plug those in as uh, the cost that annuities can be expensive not all of them but most of them um the idea that you lock up your money that they have long surrender periods not all of them but most of them um and this idea that people forget about this every time inflation inflation matters there's probably only one or maybe a few annuities that offer this idea of inflation protection and guess what that's built in to dividend growth so um if I look at this article, well, and by the way, even the annuities that offer inflation protection, they charge for it. They charge for it exactly, and I think there, I, I, I could be corrected, but I, I'm serious. There might only be one or two out there that actually offer that because of the risk on the back end for the insurance company. But re- yeah, regardless of the specific number, it, the whole point is that they're not. They would never be doing it as a uh, charitable endeavor. They would no be, such thing you know, as a free it, lunch. It would have a cost. Yeah. Exactly. So when we boil it down, um, looking at uh, what I like about a dividend growth portfolio, uh, let's be quick. Plug in the cost. Um, we're buying stocks directly. There's not a, a, a lower cost way to get exposure to the stock market. I put a disclaimer in here. This is not a, a, an advocacy for having an all dividend growth portfolio. We believe in diversification. Uh, this is the idea of it being the nucleus or the core of a portfolio to build um, uh, kind of a custom pension for somebody. The lockup, um, I don't know if there's a more liquid market than the stock market. This idea that you could um, uh, exchange your stocks for um, cash uh, fairly easily in uh, these large exchanges. Um, and then the last part is inflation. Uh, you can go ahead and take a look at inflation over the last 20, 30, 40 years, and you can compare that to the dividend growth of the general market. You're going to find inflation somewhere around 2%. The growth of a dividend somewhere around six and a half percent. So it's that built-in uh, inflation protection, and I feel like this is giving somebody the answers to the test. This is pretty easy. Uh, I don't know why more people don't adopt this as a solution. Not only, uh, and we can talk about the reason why you do it during during accumulation phase, but there's no question about it that um, if you want to sunset into uh, into uh, retirement, why this wouldn't be a good solution for you. And why the government shouldn't encourage this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think that there is an active lobbying group of, of freelance dividend growth uh, <laughs> investors. It doesn't tend to be bundled around a product quite the way that uh, our, our friends in the life insurance business. They're a very organized group. Well, th- it was it, that's an excellent point. Um, so building your own pension is probably counterintuitive to one who is being told to have your own investment portfolio. Yeah, the income's growing. It's resulting in a future return of cash to you. So your point is that it's a practical pension, but it does. it's not a structural pension where people are just used to thinking, hey, I worked all these years and then someone gives me a check back later. So how do you how do we get people to the point of thinking about it like no you really are doing it just without the wrapper? Um, I have a question for you before I even answer that. Okay. Do you do you like the idea of calling it building your own pension, or do you think do. that's a distraction? Um, no, I do not think it's a distraction. I think it's a very useful uh, framework for for how you want to think about it. But I do think it requires that additional level of education. That, that people have to realize, first of all, unless you work for the government, it's very unlikely that you're in a job that's going to offer you what we would call a defined benefit plan, uh, which is that kind of traditional um, pension. And so to the degree that we are simply referring to the idea 
of there's a period of time when I'm working and building something up, and then there's a period of time where I'm getting cash back in my checking account, and that the old not the old uh, method for doing that was these pension funds. Now you, you're going to have to do that on your own, and and so basically it's what you've written here. I like the framing. I like that thinking, uh, and and I mean, you know, if we really want to go on a tangent. I'm not sure I like the idea of people thinking of age 60 as this point in which I no longer do anything but receive a check. But I do like the idea of people thinking about financial freedom and financial stability and all that type of stuff. I don't like the idea of inactivity, but that's a separate point altogether. And that was You should write a book on that. That is another book that's coming, by the way. I need a little time on that one. But I feel pretty passionate about it. I love the idea of people not needing money still working. You know, I'm a big fan of that. Oh, I'm a huge fan, especially, uh, I don't know what the, the new longevity numbers are, but perhaps people in the future on average are living high 70s or 80 plus. Yeah. Um, somebody retiring at 60 and then just hanging up the hat and uh, not being able to invest back in society. I thought all the, um, like the fast food and all the, the steaks and everything were, gonna, were killing us. And <laughs> we keep living longer. No, people are living longer and healthier. Huh. Okay. Well, so, so at the end of the day, you have longevity. Uh, you probably do not have government pensions to rely on. And so the need for, as you're talking about, building your own pension is even more more severe. And then it comes down to what's the best way to do it. And obviously, we argue for dividend growth. Yeah. And, you know, when I first started reading about dividend growth, one of the things that really caught my eye, um, you showed me a chart of something like the last 70 years of the S&P 500. And we're not talking about a specific dividend growth portfolio. And I think over that time period, there was only five years where we saw a year over year decline in the actual dividend payment. Does that sound correct to you? Yeah. Um, And to me, that was like... uh, eye-opening, and I started to read into it. I read a paper by Michael Mobison, and I started to realize that um, when we talk about the stock market and we say it has volatility and the price moves and all that, um, we're, we're, we're talking about the price. We're not talking about the dividend. Dividends do not have that same volatility. They're real cash flows that come from companies that are sharing uh, profits to shareholders. And when you begin to realize that, you begin to realize there's some stability there. Well, and I would, I, I think you're understating the point, Trevor. It's not just that there's stability; it's that there is vertical mobility. It's going in the right direction, and and uh, very consistently. But here's the thing that is useful to even unpack the pension idea further. I do not know of anybody ever. Who received a pension check? Who wondered how the underlying performance, uh, how the underlying investments were performing? The whole point of the pension, from General Motors or from uh, the city of you know X Y Z or from the state of X Y Z, being a government employee or having a pension at your old school company, the whole point was they got to pay me my four thousand nine hundred sixty dollars a month, regardless of how the portfolio is performing. Yet obviously. The money that is generating that pension check is coming from a portfolio that's being invested. And they're paying that money even at a time in which the portfolio value is inevitably declining. And so we are very comfortable not thinking about underlying assets when we know we have that consistent income. But when it comes to our own money and we're seeing the marks on our own statement, then all of a sudden we think differently about it. But there is, in fact, no difference. There is no difference, and it's funny that um, 
perhaps it goes to this idea that ignorance is bliss, but it really isn't bliss because at the end of the day, the guarantee is only as good as the guarantor. And um, does our country perhaps have a problem with some of the pensions out there? I'll let uh, the listeners answer that question. Yeah, that's, it's a great point. But I think I think that um, the, the article you wrote suggesting that we think about that future retirement income in the context of building our own pension is very useful. And of course, not just not nothing to do with the book I wrote, but having to do with the worldview of investing I've adopted for nearly 20 years and we put into practice here at the Bonson Group very heavily, very zealously. And, and um, I think we execute it um, very proficiently is that idea of, of dividend growth, cash flow, generative investments, growing their income over time. I think it's stellar stuff. Well, Trevor, anything you want to close out with? Uh, no, on that last article, I did um, include a link to uh, your interview uh, with Mr. Forbes, uh, which I thought was- Or his a, interview with me, right? Is it? Yeah. How do you say that? He was lucky to have you there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> um, and I, I was lucky to be there. Yes. And uh, another encouragement for people to order the book, um, and the thing that I've told uh, many people is that the book is palatable. It's easy for um, even your common investor to read. You don't have to have a deep education in finance and- Many, many, many people have emailed me that um, it's been, uh, I don't want to take it too far, but I'm, I'm being honest with you, is that it's been a life-changing book in the sense of how they view finance. So I would encourage the listeners to order the book, to read it, to uh, send us questions. And um, until next time, we will see you to talk about the articles for the month of September. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.